Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's Fordham Conversations, three students' stories. First, Viviana Castellan talks with kid reporters. Then, Connor Tehan interviews veteran newsman Brian Williams. And Mary Wilson talks with Keith Allen Howie about homeless veterans. But first, the next time you pick up that copy of the New York Daily News, you might be surprised to learn that the journalist behind a hard-hitting story was actually an eight-year-old. As WFUV's Viviana Castellan reports, for the past 10 years, an organization called Children's Press Line has been giving kids between the ages of 8 and 18 the chance to develop their own scoops in the nation's largest media market. At 16, Alan Francois traded his academic for an no, uh, you got to do better than that. Right. After a long day at school, 13-year-old Mitchell Winter is recording his script for a story on high school dropouts. Two editors here at Children's Press Line are coaching him along. I'm, really, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just open to suggestions. Mitchell's in eighth grade. He has curly reddish hair and is wearing a navy blue sweatsuit emblazoned with his school's emblem. Mitchell lives and attends a private school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Mitchell says he's had a passion for journalism since he was in third grade and started reading the New York Times. Journalism is like the beach. When the tide comes in, you never know what's going to wash up. That tide can wash up $25 in gold, and that $25 in gold in journalism could be a new great story. Mitchell's been working as a reporter for Children's Press Line for about a year. He's covered a wide range of issues, from homelessness to education. Mitchell says he thinks young journalists like himself offer a unique perspective on serious issues. Let's say a 30-year-old man walks, is reading like some newspaper and children's press line pops up. It's nice to hear what a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old has to say about uh, dropout rates or something in New York City instead of listening to the guy, um, some guy about your age saying the same thing you probably think. It's nice to hear a different angle. Children's Press Line has offices in Lower and Northern Manhattan. The not-for-profit organization launched 10 years ago and works to integrate the voices of young people into mainstream media. Major broadcast and print media outlets air and publish their stories, including the New York Daily News and PBS NewsHour. Executive Director Elisa Bernstein says the kids who take part in the program come from all over the city and from all walks of life. But she says they have one thing in common, a love for news. The kids who really get into children's press line are pretty self-selective. I mean, these are kids who, you know, in their spare time will uh, read the newspaper and, you know, trawl CNN and BBC and, and New York Times. We'll go around the benches. There's always a lot of teenagers who are sitting and skateboarding. So okay. we'll try and spot out a couple and then we'll... Alexandra Walhorn is an editorial director with Children's Press Line. She's taken about a half dozen young reporters with her to Union Square Park to get what we call in the business men on the street interviews with teenagers about high school dropout rates. The younger kids especially are clearly intimidated to approach and ask questions to total strangers. Eight-year-old Olivia Fondi works up the nerve to start asking questions. Do you have any personal experience with people who have dropped out of school? Olivia's pretty new at this. She's only been with Children's Press Line about a month, but so far, she's into it. Olivia says she enjoys diving into new issues and keeping people informed. I think that's really cool, like, for kids to get a chance, like, to be heard about, and, like, that's, 
that's cool that I get to see my name in like the newspaper or see me on like TV. Editor Alexandra Walhorn proudly points out that Children's Press Line reporters have even scooped major publications. She recalls the time they beat the New York Times to a story that uncovered a major spike in suspensions in New York City public schools. Tell you the truth, I think they were a little upset. Um, I mean, they were really happy, but then they were like, oh, of course the New York Times had to go do our story. You know, they think of it as like, this is our story, and then they see it somewhere else. Children's Press Line says many of its reporters go on to pursue careers in journalism. That's the goal of Mitchell Winter. The teen says he's proud of how far his writing has come in the past year but knows he has more to do to sharpen his skills. I think the most challenging part is writing questions because you've really got to think. And asking the questions is the easy part. I mean, even for you, didn't you have trouble writing the questions? I mean, it's, it's hard. you got to think. And Winter will have plenty of opportunities to think. Children's Press Line Executive Director Elisa Bernstein says they'll soon be working on a series of stories about adolescent depression and youth detention centers. I'm Viridiana Castellan, WFUB News. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams delivered Fordham's 166th commencement speech. But just before he spoke, WFUV's Connor Tehan snagged this phone interview with the veteran newsman. Do you have any formal affiliation with Fordham University? No, I don't, other than listening to Michael Kay do the play-by-play on Yankee baseball. Um, that's as close as I get to Fordham University. No, I mean, I, I grew up in the New York area all my life. Um, Fordham hoodies are part of the firmament of New York. As a Catholic, it was um, on my radar, certainly, and I had friends who went there, but uh, no, no personal connection. Have you ever been? I have been, um, and I forget why. I think a journalism seminar here and there and maybe a basketball game. Okay, and um, what do you plan on focusing uh, for your commencement speech? Well, um, I think, you know, a little bit of advice, a little bit of um, why the graduates should feel so good and so empowered on this day, why their parents and families should feel good, and um, a little bit of a call to action. And what does it mean to you to be given the honor of being the commencement speaker? Well, it means everything for one very big reason. I have a high school degree, and I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, where I just spoke at an education conference, surrounded by educators. And um, I I didn't do it right. I didn't have the right financial circumstances. I didn't have the right skills as a student. I kicked around a community college, transferred two and three more times. And so here I am in one of the best and most visible jobs in the country with about 18 transferable college credits. And so that gives me a very unique perspective. And it lets me, it enables me to give the the graduates um, a little bit of an extra charge, a little bit of an extra kick. Looking back, would you have uh, changed anything you did in your education career? 
Sure. I think I would have um, done what it took. I mean, as it turned out, I chose the only occupation where the credential of a college degree is not a prerequisite. In my line of work, if you can write and write quickly, and if you know history and you can make your way in the world, you can be successful. It's still like an aircraft carrier landing to try to make it, get a job at the network level, uh, say nothing of, you know, an anchor job. But I, I chose the one occupation, journalism, where you're looking for a certain kind of character who can write. Now, nowadays, it's very, it's a highly competitive market, and especially in media and communications. And Fordham is a big communications school. Would you have any advice for those graduates aspiring to be journalists? Yeah, some of it I'll save for the field, but uh, uh, mostly, um, you know, I said this, uh, I, I see on Twitter traffic today, I said this last night on uh, Carson Daly. I always use the word hustler, and I don't consider it a negative or a pejorative. It means be willing to do whatever you need to do to get by, have a passion. I always tell communication students, if you chose our occupation at career day, and it was like a toss-up between farming and dentistry, then you probably shouldn't do this. However, if this is all you've ever wanted to do, welcome, because that's my story, and that's the story of the guys I uh, have come up with and respect the most. How do you see the uh, the media industry changing over the over the next couple of years? Well, I'm kind of surfing it now, and all of us are trying to time this set of waves so we we get a ride into the beach. You know, I've I've watched tremendous changes in the 26, 27 years I've been in the business, and. Uh, you know, I got a blog, and I, I'm sitting here in LAX, walking to my gate, reading the Twitter feed for my name, my broadcast, and stuff I'm interested in. All that's a sea change. As I look out into this airline terminal, um, I wonder how many people are going to be home to watch NBC Nightly News tonight, and then uh, another subgroup, how many are going to catch up with portions of it. Um, components, individual stories. Um, how many of them are going to read the same amount of news today they would have 25 years ago, but look, instead of looking down at their phones, seeing a headline, and considering that news consumption for the day? Now, you were talking about how you had a real strong desire to become a journalist. What made you say to yourself, you know, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I could probably make a career out of it. I was single-minded. I, I grew up watching Walter Cronkite and uh, suburban New Jersey Shore, and he was like my North Star. And there was only one thing I wanted to do. And so I uh, just kind of on a leap of faith, I kicked around in college, kicked around in a couple jobs, and I just said to myself, you'll never know unless you try. I knew I could write because I'd done um, some newspaper writing, but finally I just moved myself out to the Midwest and uh, started basic, started in a small town seven days a week. Define your, your defining moment as a journalist or as an anchor when you said, you know, this is it for me. Well, 
there were two. One, when I thought I was so bad that I quit the business, moved back to Washington, D.C., and got a job as a courier, got another job as the guy typing the letters on the screen for a TV station. But the second moment came when the boss at that TV station said to me, you know, I know your job is to type the letters onto the screen, but you've got something. Didn't you tell me you did on-air reporting before? Didn't you Didn't you work at a small television station? Do you have any of those old tapes around? And she hired me and put me on the air in Washington, D.C., um, based on a gut call. So once you're on the air in Washington, even if it's local news, you're being seen by an influential audience, and that's what happened to me. Now, obviously, you're an anchor now, but um, when you were a journalist, which which did you prefer? Did you prefer being an anchor, or did you prefer reporting? Uh, no difference between the two. My title right now is managing editor. When I land at a story, whether it's Career Square or Dallas or Iraq, uh, nobody else does the writing. Nobody else does the interviewing. No one else has to exert the judgment or do the composition. Um, when I sit down to write uh, what I say on NBC Nightly News, ditto. Um, it's a common misperception because there's, uh, there are some who don't, and there are terrible terms out there like... Uh, newsreader and uh, the Brits call them presenters. In my line of work, uh, it's uh, nothing of the sort. Yeah. When you're reporting, what, what is the most exciting moment as a journalist? Well, one person's exciting is another's harrowing. I mean, I've probably flown more miles in Blackhawks uh, over the last 10 years than I have certain types of commercial planes. And I've done a fair amount of time uh, covering these two wars. I find it the most challenging. I find it the most invigorating. It takes you out of your comfort level. You can be at 30 Rock in Midtown Manhattan on a Monday, and by Wednesday, you are in somebody's rack at a fire base in Afghanistan eating MREs three times a day if you can stand it. It's hot. You are going out with the infantry. They are in charge of your safety. There's a hostile enemy outside the wire of the base. It's an interesting life. As a journalist, how did you handle the news that Osama bin Laden had been killed? Well, I received a phone call at home uh, on on that Sunday night at uh, 9.43. And I, uh, I was told uh, by the White House press secretary that I should be in the chair. And I said, you got to tell me more than that. And he did. He said, we got OBL. And uh, then he told me it was a close hold and not to share it with anybody. And I uh, drove very quickly into the city to 30 Rock and was able to get in, in the chair in time to announce, uh, to introduce the president who made the announcement. Was it difficult for you to... Um to be reporting on the news, but knowing something that the audience didn't know and knowing that you couldn't really disclose that? Um, Not the first time. It was a big story for that to happen, but it wasn't the first time. I've walked into a tactical command center uh, in Iraq, and I was shown, third day of the war, I was shown the entire war plan. I was shown so-called black ops and equipment uh, that was going to be used in the war that I had to forget I'd seen. 
Um, that kind of thing happens because when Americans' lives are at stake, it's not uncommon for us to be shared something that we can't then talk about. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to hearing you on Saturday. That was WFUV's Connor Tehan talking with veteran newsman Brian Williams. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Coming up, we have some of Mary Wilson's conversation with Keith Allen Howie, who's discussing his master's thesis on homeless veterans. That's ahead. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Keith Allen Howie still carries his tape recorder with him, just in case he sees someone he'd like to interview. Someone camped out on a park bench, maybe. Someone in military garb. Howie just finished his master's thesis on homeless veterans. For about a year, Howie carried that tape recorder around, and he interviewed 10 men, veterans who are currently homeless or have been homeless at some point. Howie asked them to tell their life stories. He said he wanted to allow them to say whatever they thought was important. He brought those interviews together into a thesis and picked out the common themes in the stories he heard. He was trying to figure out, as he put it, how the military creates the conditions for homeless veterans. One minute, these individuals were the national heroes, then the next, they're homeless. So there seems to be some kind of disjunct, and I just wanted to find out what that was. Any any uh, clues so far as to what it is? From the 10 interviews, which you really can't make any generalizations, um, but it, it seems like um, the way that the um, initial process of basic training and stuff um, occurs, there's a resocialization process where they kind of relearn all their life skills, um, kind of learn how to depend on individuals differently. This is when somebody enters the military. Yeah, during basic training. And it, it really goes on throughout the, the whole military process. The further they go into the process, the more they start identifying with their MOS, which is their, their occupation during the um, military. MOS um, is just your job title? Yeah, military occupation specialty. Um, artillery, military police, um, stuff like that. So the more you go into the, the military, the more you start identifying with this MOS. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of banter about whose MOS is better, um, and it just shows that there's a different way of going about talking to people and a different trust among people, and that's really started at basic training. Um, and then what I also found was there's a lot of uncontrolled alcohol and drug abuse um, just because there's a lot of downtime in the military. Um, and one of the biggest ways for the trust of soldiers um, to be increased is through um, alcohol and, and drug culture to the point where they make drinking games and stuff like that, um, kind of like fraternities type type drinking games. And then a couple other things that I found was the communications, like when an individual goes on off to basic training or to war, initially there's a lot of letters and they really have a, it's kind of like the romanticized Hollywood version of like Jenny writing Forrest Gump, like the letters. Um, but after a while, those letters kind of get mundane, and the the special the special feeling that the soldier gets is no longer there. So then they stop talking to the people at home, um, and then just the the prolonged separation um, 
a lot of military members might get like two weeks of leave every year. And sometimes they don't even go back home because they go um, travel um, to Europe and stuff on the on military flights. So all of this stuff kind of are the, the conditions of military service that when individuals come back and try to reintegrate into um, normal society, they don't really have the ability to talk to their friends, families, or just individuals that would help them get a job, help them secure housing, um, help them stay away from deviant behaviors. So then they start hanging out with um, deviant cultures. Pretty much all of the interviewees that I had um, got into some kind of drug network. Not a drug network, but a deviant network. Um, what, one, what do you mean by a deviant network? Um, one it's not was, something you hear tossed around yeah, a lot. <laughs> a deviant network would just be um, a group of individuals that really can't be relied on to give you social support or resources that you that would help you benefit. Just a bad crowd. Yeah, pretty much. That that's the the, the easy way to say it. Um, um, some joined the drug trade. Some got into gangs. Um, some just started um, hanging around with people that were doing drugs and stuff like that. So eventually, they would start doing bad things. Lost all the savings that they gained from the military and didn't have anyone to help them with the financial support that they needed or the opportunities that they could get, like jobs or cheap housing and stuff like that. So eventually it led to a downward spiral of their homelessness. You said before the social supports are, are completely disrupted. Yeah, what somebody... happens is normally um, individuals that don't go into um, the military, they can go off to college, they can start families, they can um, reestablish new networks or continue their old networks. Um, even if you go to college, you can always go back and you can talk to people. But in the meantime, you're also creating new friendships in college. Um, the military really disrupts that process. And even though they do create friendships in the military, um, once they're discharged from the military, they don't continue those friendships. So, so why is that? Why is the discharge process so abrupt? Well, well, one of the things is during graduation, say at a college, everyone's graduating at the same time. So um, everyone's pretty much doing the same process at the same time. Um, they're going on starting new careers at the same time. Um, with the discharge process from the military, it's an individual act. So one person's getting discharged now, but the other's still in the military. And then the other's in the military and someone gets um, uh, dishonorably discharged or something like that. So it's it's a lot to do with the fact that some people are still in the military, some people are getting out. But you don't move as a team. You don't yeah, move as you, a class. There's they, no class of 94. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, during basic training there is, but after that you go on to your own uh, duty stations and then you change around and there's no real classes. It's just an individual person going in through where they're needed. Um, and then another thing is a lot of individuals with dishonorable discharges um, because of their drug use in the military or because they went AWOL or something, they feel like they left on a bad note, so they don't want to associate themselves with the military anymore, which also affects their ability to get the benefits of the VA. Um, and then um, there was one individual who had two tours of Iraq in Iraq during his first enlistment, and then he had to think about reenlisting. So he had to choose between reenlisting and probably going back to Iraq or Afghanistan or leaving the military. So he was kind of 
Because he had no finance. Well, he he liked the military, but okay. he just didn't want to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan. So that created some personal identity problems where even though he qualifies, he feels like he's not worthy enough or he let the military down. So he doesn't go for the benefits or he didn't go for the benefits. Just because he didn't re-up his contract. Yeah. So the, the discharge process, it, even if you have dishonorable or honorable, there's just something that you feel like you're not living up to the expectations of the military. You're letting it down. You left on a bad note. Um, and it's an individual process. So there's no, once you're discharged from the military, you can't go back and get those social supports. I'm curious, now, now you're a veteran. I am a veteran. Obviously, that has something to do with picking a project that focuses so closely on veterans. How did it affect this project? Well, the the original reason I wanted to study veterans is to see how the military benefits individuals. Um, I come from a fairly working-class background, and I feel like I've succeeded because of the military. So that was my initial impetus to study veterans. But after I went out in the field, um, started talking to some people, seeing what was actually happening, I, I thought it would be better to understand how individuals like myself didn't succeed. One of the big things that occurred is as I was interviewing a fairly young gentleman that just got back from Iraq is he could have been in my position and I could have been in his position. So it's really hard to interview someone so close to your social position, but so far. Like, I could have been homeless, and he could have been studying me. So it's kind of emotionally difficult, and that was one of the the problems that I ran into with trying to collect more more interviews, because I realized that if it was difficult for me, it had to be difficult for them. And as a master's student, even if I wrote a paper, it may not be seen as reputable because I'm only a master's. So I really limited it to 10, um, hoping that if I get into uh, school for a PhD, um, then if I write an article with more than 10 people, then it'd be more, more accepted. How did you find a lot of the veterans that you interviewed? I emailed a lot of um, organizations that worked with homeless veterans. You just walk up to guys and say, hey, I'm working on this project. Can um, you help me? Well, actually, the, the program director kind of helped me introduce myself. So she was very um, helpful in um, getting people to initially open up to me. Um, but then some people were like, oh, I want to talk to you or can I talk to you? Um, and then I went around to other organizations that really dealt with homelessness, um, kind of like soup kitchens. I volunteered at a lot of uh, New York City-based soup kitchens and stuff like that, just to kind of get a feel of the general homeless population as well as if there was a difference between them and the veteran population. Um, and then whenever they would sit down, I would make an announcement and say, I'm doing this project. I'm looking for homeless veterans to talk to. If anyone wants to talk to me, I'll be around. So I got like three other ones from that way. And then the last two I got were from um, individuals that weren't from, from a soup kitchen or anything. I would just walk around um, trying to find individuals that... Just walking around New York. Yeah, so... So you would be... I mean, so you had a couple different ways of, of finding people to interview. Mm -hmm. um, does it Does it make it different? So when you walk down the street now and you see somebody sitting off to the side, are you kind of looking in the faces of people that you... That you pass and just go, and I wonder if you're a veteran. People who look like they're, you know, they're not waiting for a bus. People who look like they're there for a few hours or yeah. a few days. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's really opened my eyes to the the homeless situation. And then I'm always thinking, like, what is your story? Are you a veteran? Should I? Because I always carry around my tape recorder. And I'm always wondering, like, should, yeah, I'm always thinking, like, should I try to interview them for my Ph.D. thesis? But it always comes down to that emotional distress that I felt. And I I'm kind of like I, I kind of don't feel like doing that to them as well as myself, especially if I'm not sure if what they're going to tell me is going to be used in some kind of Ph.D. reputable journal type thing. Can you can you explain that to me? I'm, I'm not there. Yeah, well, I mean, the the stories that I've I've got um, have been pretty heart wrenching. Um, listening to people go through the military process as one of their the happiest moments of their life, and then just listening to their downward spiral into homelessness. It's just a lot of their stories could probably be made into like lifetime movie dramatic, like Oscar winning dramas or whatever. But as a sociologist that is taking interviews, you kind of have to keep a straight face. Because if, if you're taking an interview and you like make some facial motions or something like that, they might not lie, but kind of put more emphasis on that certain area. So what I try to do is just kind of talk to them, kind of just probe them along as they would tell their story rather than trying to look at me watching them to kind of make a better story. My thanks to Viviana Castellan, Connor Tehan, Mary Wilson, and Keith Allen Howie. That's it for this week's Fordham Conversations, but keep it here. George Bodarki and Cityscape are up next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>